Sachin and Steven. It is great to have you on Notes from the Front. Really excited to talk to you about Grow SF. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Awesome. Okay. We have a lot to cover as we have a very important election coming up in just a few days. And uh, I think most San Franciscans are probably pretty familiar with Grow SF at this point because you guys have been running ads. You have created a voter guide that has gone viral and has become sort of a go-to guide for San Franciscans from what I can tell. Before we get into all of that, why don't we start with each of you giving a very brief introduction to sort of your background and the story of how GrowSF got started. Let's keep it tight, though, because we need to spend most of the time on San Francisco policy and the upcoming election. Sachin, why don't you kick us off? Uh, yeah, I'm Sachin. Um, so I've been in San Francisco for about 15 years. My background's in tech. I was an engineer, pro uh, company founder, and product manager at various places. And I live in the sunset with my wife and two daughters. And uh, we love living in San Francisco and we want to live here for the rest of our lives. Awesome. And hey, I'm Steven. I got involved in politics when I moved to San Francisco in 2016. Had never been involved in politics before. Started with the housing policy because I moved here and it was, it was so hard to find an affordable place to live. And uh, just got deeper and deeper involved over the years. I actually ran for office in March 2020 and got completely blown out and took that loss to volunteer for campaigns for that November, November 2020, while we were all you know, confined to our homes. And uh, that was the experience that made me realize I had to leave Google and do this full time because I had such an amazing time working so hard on things that really mattered. And like that, that's what got me out of bed during the pandemic. It wasn't my day job. Um, and, and then in April of 21, I left Google, joined up with Sachin, and, and here we have uh, Grow SF. Sachin, can you share a little bit about what got you interested in SF politics? So about five years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to raise our kids in the city. And you know, I never really paid attention to local politics. But um, at that moment, I started to dig in. And what I found was both incredibly shocking, um, but also uh, gave me some hope. And so what was shocking was just seeing like really how dysfunctional the city was, just how hard it is to build housing, um, how we were losing police officers and public safety was beca becoming more of an issue. Uh, the fact that we weren't even teaching kids algebra in middle school. Like, it's like, oh my God, like what is going on here? But the encouraging part was that everything that's wrong with San Francisco is a policy decision. It's all based off of, local elections and things or people that we have voted for. And so that's where Steve and I came together with this shared strategy of like the way we get the city on the right track is to educate voters on uh, how the city is run, why we're not seeing, you know, the city thrive and prosper as it should. And then to give people the information, the tools to make a better, more informed decision in local elections. Um, and that's been our focus from day one. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Sajin, can you then explain how that growing interest in the city and making it a better place led to GrowSF? Sure. So, you know, I think a, a pivotal moment for me was in the November 2019 election. And that was an election when, um, you know, I was starting to, to pay more attention and I volunteered as a poll worker. Um, and in that election, Dean Preston won a supervisor seat by about 125 votes. 
And Chase Boudin wow. won uh, as district attorney by about 2,000 votes. And after that election, after the result came out, people were pissed. Um, Twitter was just an uproar of people saying like, oh my God, like, you know, these people are going to ruin the city. Um, and, and, you know, at that moment, I'm thinking like, well, why weren't people talking about this a few days ago or a few weeks ago to influence yeah. votes? Um, like, it's too late now. Like, these are the results like, that we're going we're gonna to have to live with. And so that was kind of the aha moment of like, okay, the, the power in San Francisco does not lie with the mayor. It lies with the board of supervisors. And these people are winning by hundreds of votes. And so it's very fixable. And so in 2020, Stephen and I met and we started talking about like, you know, what we could do to um, educate voters. Um, and this was during the pandemic and it was just a lot of late night phone calls. Like we didn't meet in person for a really long time, um, wow. but we just love the city. And, you know, many nights we were just talking about like, you know, the, the, the dream of what San Francisco could be and, and how could we help uh, get us there. How did you guys meet? Sachin and I met with, during the pandemic. He was getting involved in politics for the first time and talking to everyone. And you know, everyone kept mentioning, "Oh, you should you should talk to Stephen. You're you're so similar. You're really aligned." Uh, so finally, we connected, and the, I think our first contact was like a 9 p.m. phone call. And we both, of course, been drinking whiskey. Uh, well, maybe he was having wine. I was having a whiskey. And then we just vibed, you know, we talked for like an hour and a half about the direction of the city, how we thought we could fix it. And more importantly, more, more importantly than our own ideas about the city, the strategy of how do we get voters the best information possible? Because, you know, we both believe in people. If you have good information, you will make a good decision. And the problem in San Francisco is you've got this 10 page ballot and no working person has the time to research everything on the ballot. You, you simply don't. You know, it's my full time job when we are writing the voter guide to research everything on the ballot. And that takes a solid six to eight weeks of full time mm. work. No reasonable person can do that. So our goal from the beginning is do the best research compile it into an easy to read and easy to understand voter guide and just give that to people. And so if you look at our voter guide, it's, you know, the majority two over two thirds of the guide is pure fact. It's here's what the bill does. Here's why it's on the ballot. Here's who introduced it. Here's why. And all of that is useful with, if you agree with our ultimate recommendation or if you don't. All I want is people to operate mm. on the same shared reality about what this thing does. And, you know, take right now, Proposition A on the ballot. It will fund construction of subsidized housing and will pay for it via a municipal bond. I think it's a good policy, but reasonable people can disagree. You know, some people are think, think like, well, it's really expensive to build subsidized homes and maybe we should try something different. That's a fair disagreement, but we, at least we agree on how the proposition works and then we mm -hmm. can make our own decisions. That's, that's our goal. We're not trying that. to mislead anyone. We're not even trying to change anyone's minds. We just want to make it understandable. Love that. All right. Well, just to push on that point a bit, 
there were voter guides before your voter guide, right? There was like mm-hmm. the pissed off voter guide. Mm-hmm. There's the Chronicle. There's Spur. Um, mm-hmm. What were some other ones at the time? And like, what did you think was missing? Like, why were none of those good enough for you to think things were fine? Well, I'll just say this. If you write a voter guide and no one reads it, what was the point? Uh, so do you think- no, I'll you hand think... it off to Suction there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you're right. Like, um, before Grow Stuff existed, there, there were voter guides. Um, so we have a few problems. First of all, uh, the top two voter guides before we existed were controlled by the far left. That's the League of Pissed Off Voters and the SF Democratic Party. So they were moving okay. a lot of votes, but they were actually endorsing the people that have caused a lot of the problems that exist in the city today. Right? They were endorsing the people who, will, who block housing or who want to defund the police or who banned algebra from middle school. Um, and the reason why people were using these voter guides is because they have good brands and people didn't know that they were endorsing poorly. So when we started, we had a few core beliefs that we really like uh, thought would lead to success. One is we need to build trust with voters. You can't just show up a month before an election and send a bunch of glossy mail to people and expect them to vote your way. So we do a lot of work outside of elections to educate people on what's going on in the city, what our views are as Grow SF and the city that we want to see. So people can start to say like, oh yeah, you know, I align with Grow SF. I like what they're saying. and I like the direction that they're going in. Second, you know, we focus on the issues that matter to voters. So we know right now that public safety is the number one issue for folks. And that is our number one issue. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't, uh, an organization at the time that was focused on, you know, quality of life of, you know, I need to feel safe. I need the streets to be clean. I need my kids to have a good public education. Um, and, you know, that was really important to us. And third, yeah, you know, we, uh, want to make sure we have a lot of reach. And so we p- create a voter guide. It's on our website. It's, a, you know, uh, we print it out. We do it in English. We do it in Chinese. And then we mail it to folks and then we, we run digital ads. Uh, so you see it on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Google. Um, but now when you see our ads or you get our mail, you know who we are. You don't just put it in the trash or ignore it. Um, I think yeah. those things lead to a lot of people like actually using the guide um, and, and using our recommendations. Let me just ask a couple clarifying questions there. Um, so, Okay. SF Democratic Party and League of Pissed Off Voters, yeah, definitely historically both have been quite on the left um, progressive. Was there a moderate or more moderate leading voter guide prior to Grow SF? Well, there was Spur, um, which like, I don't think it's fair to call Spur moderate. I think, no, I think they're either. pretty nonpartisan. You know, I, I, I think, um, I think Spur, their primary role is as a think tank and their primary area of expertise is urban development. So they don't endorse on things like algebra or on police staffing or, or you know, things like that or drug policy, right? They only to endorse on housing and transit. And okay. like that, that's good. We need that voice. Um, but, but also let me enough. add, um, they literally only endorse ballot props. So they weren't endorsing mm. any candidates. They weren't endorsing the board of supervisor candidates, which, you know, we think is the most important race in local elections. 
Okay. So then it sounds to me like if I am reading this correctly, there was a bit of a gap in the voter guide market, you could call it. Um, not that it's a marketplace really, but okay, that makes sense. All right. So um, it sounds like both of you identified this and said this needs to change. There should be another point of view in the mix. It's, is there, and now it seems like, are there more voter guides now? Is does Together SF do a voter guide? Or I feel like now what I'm hearing from people is they're feeling a bit overwhelmed by the voter guides. Is that a, an issue now? Or can you speak to that? There are more moderate voter guides with better distribution now. Um, we, okay. we led the charge on that and mm-hmm. showed that it was a good way to reach voters with good information. And so um, obviously other people are um, doing the same thing now, which is, which is fine. Great. I want voters to have more information. Um, the important thing is that the voters get unbiased information. So like I, I want to read just a real quick, an excerpt from the League of Pissed Off Voters. Sure. Uh, about two ballot props they're doing. And it's not going to be long, just a sentence each. So Proposition F, they call it forced drug screening for the poor. And in their first, their opening line, Prop F is a hateful piece of tough love posturing that by Mayor Breed that would revive the nastiest and least effective aspects of the war on drugs. Completely over the top. Then you go to Mm -hmm. Prop uh, G, which is, this is asking the school board to teach algebra again. They say, they say, Prop G, make algebra great again. Oh God. Rounding out the wedge salad, we have Prop G, a pointless attempt to tell the school district how to teach math. Wait, are we living in a red state? What's with these anti-woke school board takeovers and ballot measures dictating curriculum? This is about teaching children algebra. That's how they talk about issues. And so voters, if they read that, they are bombarded with the most insane, over-the-top arguments. And frankly, voters deserve better. So if you go to uh, the Grow SF Voter Guide, um, which I'll pull up in real time here, here's Prop F. Here's how we open Prop F. Proposition F, drug and alcohol treatment for city services. Proposition F is an initiative ordinance from Mayor Breed that will require drug screening and substance abuse treatment for single adults receiving cash assistance from the city. It will not apply to families or seniors. Pure facts, not over the top. Go down to Prop G. Uh, Yes on Proposition G. Eighth grade algebra and SFUSD math curriculum development. Proposition G is a declaration of policy, which means it's not a law. It's a statement of the city's intent to do or support something. It states it's the official city policy to urge the school district to offer Algebra 1 to students by eighth grade. Hmm. The difference between the tone and the information being conveyed could not be more uh, stark. So we are succeeding in our goal of giving the best, most unbiased, most deeply researched information to voters, and then they get to choose how they vote. We don't bombard them with hyperbolic partisan statements. So I'm so proud that we have created this voter guide that is so useful and so unbiased that any voter can read, learn deeply, really what's on the ballot and then make their own choice. And I think no one was doing that before us. That's what we brought to the table. 
just to add to that, um, you know, we do a lot of polling to understand where voters are and what issues they care about and, you know, the direction they want to see a city go in. And the voters align generally with what GrowSF wants, right? We want a city that's growing, thriving, and, you know, we have all the resources to be the greatest city in the world. And so that means that if we just put facts out there, like Stephen's saying, then people are going to vote along the lines of what we recommend. And that's all we need to do. And the other side, the far left, they know that they are on the wrong side of voters. And so they cannot talk about the issues because if they talk about the issues and what they want to see, they will lose every time. So the mm -hmm. only thing that they can do is resort to this hyperbolic language or to resort to attacks or resort to lies. Yeah. And, you know, we're really proud to say we've been around for three and a half, almost four years, and we have not ever lied. You know, everything we put out there is fact. Um, of course, we have our recommendations, which you know people are fine if someone disagrees with our recommendations, but we've never put something out there that we won't stand behind. Mm -hmm. That's very moving what you guys are saying about, I, I mean, just sort of being this voice of the people is sort of what I'm reading between the lines here. Um, I did check out your recent poll. It's beautifully done. The graphics, it's extremely easy to understand. And the takeaways could not be more stark. Um, I think it might be, I mean, the one that really, like, the stuff that stood out to me the most was the voter sentiment on crime. Um, the two stats that are sort of swirling in my mind are one, that 25% of San Franciscans reported being a victim of crime in the past year, which was astounding to me. Now, granted, maybe people who've been a victim of crime are more likely to answer a poll question. I don't know. They're feeling more jazzed up, but still, that's a really high number. Um, and I trust that you, I think you had worked with a firm and I saw at the bottom that you have all the sensitivity analysis. So I trust your methodology. Um, that 25% number is just jarring to think that one in four San Franciscans has been uh, a victim of crime just in the past year. And then the other number that really stood out to me was the percent that want the police to be fully staffed. I think it was something like 66% of San Francisco. 75%. 75. Okay. There was a different 66 number. I forget what that was. Something. Maybe... Yeah. 66, I think is to double the size of the police force. Oh yeah. Yeah. To double the police force, which is just astounding when you think about, you know, summer 2020, the average sentiment in San Francisco. I mean, there were, it was San Francisco yeah. was very on the defund train. I mean, San Francisco mm -hmm. did defund the police, right? We, I, I mean, I believe the city took $100 million out of the police budget and put it towards the African-American community. Um, I don't know where if that's still continuing, like if that's an annual thing, but the city did defund. You see now this extreme backlash. Um, and I know it's one of your top priorities. Let's, let's talk a little bit about crime in San Francisco. What are these crimes that are impacting a quarter of San Franciscans and why has public sentiment changed so much so quickly? Those are a great question. I want to start with a brief comment about the methodology of the polls. Mm -hmm. So um, the way we run the polls, we, we work with this firm, FM3. They're a highly regarded firm that runs public opinion polls for organizations across the political spectrum. Uh, they don't have an ideological bias. They work with everyone. And we trust them because we have seen their polling and uh, in the past, and we've seen election results. And we're like, okay, wow. They said, this is how people thought, and it matched how people voted. So clearly, their methodology is, is sound. Um, so the way they recruit people for the polls is they make phone calls, they send text messages, and they send emails. 
And of course, they don't add, they don't tell you ahead of time what's on the poll. So for the for the twenty five percent of people who said they were a victim of crime, uh, they didn't know that they were going to be asked about crime when they got the poll outreach. And got so uh, I I don't I don't think that there's a, a bias in there. There is of course some built in bias with any public opinion poll because you know even pollsters will tell you this like the kind of person who answers a poll is um, different in some regards compared to a kind of person who doesn't answer a poll. But it is the best way that we know of, the, that the industry knows of, to figure out how people think. So with that out of the way. Um, can I just jump in on one thing? Though? Yeah. Because yeah. this goes back to the, you know, us being focused on issues and having public opinion on our side. You know, when we put out our polls, the, you know, our, our opposition will come out and they will, say that our poll is fake they will say that our methodology is incorrect they will say that you can't trust these numbers and it doesn't matter how many times we can point them to the company that ran the poll the methodology literally the wikipedia page for statistics and you're like this is how math works like this is an accurate way to understand the population of san francisco and, and where they are but they cannot accept that and so they just lie yeah, it violates their partisan narrative. And so they reject reality rather than update their understanding of the world. Welcome to the power battle. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about crime. Um, yeah. Yeah. Stephen, why don't you yeah, pick so, us off on some of the, yeah, sharing some of your thoughts on those numbers and what's going on. Sure. Um, I'll say we were also shocked at these numbers. Like, I... To see that one out of four San Franciscans had been the victim of crime within the past year was just astonishing. Um, you know, the, the margin of error is 4.9%. So to hear that, you know, anywhere from one out of four to one out of five people experienced crime was just shocking. And then to have half of those people not report that crime to police was another completely astonishing statistic but if you think about your friends you know if you go down to the anecdote level you're like well that makes sense i i know five people who had their cars broken into and none of them reported it to the police that's a crime right. that's an unreported crime yeah um so the official statistics are wrong because they don't account for unreported crimes mm -hmm. um and i think that's an important realization not that not only shows that san francisco has a unacceptably high property crime level, but that people have lost faith in law enforcement and the ability to fight crime. Mm. Those are extremely worrying. What's that called? What's the word? I'm, I'm losing a word here. Learned helplessness? Those are, well, those are extremely worrying flags pointing towards a dysfunctional society. We have mm. to fix it. The basic social contract we have with government is we pay taxes and we get safety, right? At a fundamental level, that is the origin of government. And then we've added things like education, healthcare, et cetera. But without safety, a government that can't provide safety is illegitimate by definition. Hmm. It must be fixed or replaced. So, um, 
Okay, so it's clear there's a disconnect between what people actually want and sort of the current situation and the narrative on what people want. Can you speak a little bit more about any other major insights you had from the poll that were surprising or insightful that is um, worth putting out there? Sure. I think there are two real headline statistics that stand out. So one of the questions we asked in our latest February poll was, do you support or oppose funding the police so San Francisco can hire 500 more officers and have a fully staffed department? 75% of San Franciscans said yes. And that is true across racial lines. Every single ethnicity that we polled uh, said the same thing. The lowest support was Latino voters at 71% saying yes. So in mm-hmm. every ethnicity, we have a supermajority. And then we followed that up with another question, which, is, which was kind of wild. We said, San Francisco currently has about 1,500 police officers. If the city were to adopt staffing levels similar to other major cities like Paris, we would have 3,600 officers. Do you agree or disagree we should try to match that number? 65% of San Franciscans agreed. That's 65% of San Franciscans we sh- saying we should more than double the size of SFPD. Oh, my God. Wow. Now I hand it to Sachin to <laughs> go in on policies, et cetera. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things to talk about with police staffing, like, you know, we always talk about funding the police department and, and whatnot. You know, we actually do in our budget have funding for police officers. The issue that we have is that we can't actually hire people to be police officers mm. in San Francisco. Yep. And you know, there's, a, there's a number of, of issues there. You know, one is, of course, why would you want to be an officer in a city like SF? That's where it's a really tough job where, you know, you can maybe get a job in a suburb, you know, smaller town that, you know, you don't see as much crime. Um, but the other issue is that if you're hired by SFPD, you get a signing bonus of something like $5,000. But if you're hired in Alameda um, or Redbridge City, you might get a signing bonus of $75,000. And that might help you, you know, pay down some loans or buy a house. Um, and so we're just not able to compete with these other cities. Um, and so one of the things that we like really need to invest in is programs to increase funding for police uh, hiring and retention. Uh, and that's one of the things that's on the ballot uh, this election. Um, hiring bonuses are? Okay. And sorry, I want to take that back because the way I framed it, it's going to make it sound like it is, but it, they, they tricked us. So let me, let me just back yeah. up. So in this election, just to bring it back to to our voter guide, um, Supervisor Dorsey attempted to put a ballot prop, uh, to put a measure on the ballot to, to create a fund to do that. Um, but his legislation was actually hijacked by two other supervisors and edited to basically neuter it to the point where it's not going to do anything. And that's Prop B. And so Prop B, the, our opponents are out there straight up lying. They're saying Prop B is going to fund the police Prop B is going to help us hire uh, more police officers and keep you safe. When it is factually true that Prop B is not going to do those things. Hmm. That Prop B is not going to create a fund because it has no mechanism to actually get any money. And the way it's written, Prop B says, we will only have money to fund police hiring and retention if a future tax is passed by uh, by voters, which is not going to happen. So this is an example of just getting factual information will make it clear that you should vote no on B, but the other side is just going to lie. 
Yep. How did they overtake that bill? Like how, when you say they neutered it, what, how does that happen? So uh, basically, so uh, when a supervisor proposes legislation, um, it'll ultimately get voted on by the 11 members of the board. But before it gets there, it goes to a committee. And so this legislation went to the Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee has three members, and that's Matt Dorsey, Shimon Walden, and Asha Safai. And to pass out of Rules Committee, you need two out of three votes. And so in this case, Asha Safai and Shimon Walton had the votes to vote for the amendment that they wanted um, and then vote for the overall legislation to get it to the full board. Um, and so at that mm -hmm. point, even though Matt Dorsey was the original author of the legislation, he took his name off of it. And he said, this doesn't actually achieve the goal that I had to begin with, so I want no part in this. Um, and so it just shows, again, the, you know, the power of the Board of Supervisors, um, the power of these even smaller committees, the power of the board president who creates these committees. That's Aaron Peskin right now. Um, you know, we, we end up in this world where a lot of power just comes down to one or a few people. And, and the people who have the power are not uh, investing in public safety and other things that voters care about. And you might reasonably ask, well, couldn't Supervisor Dorsey just introduce another, uh, you know, another go at it? Um, so the answer is no, partly because of what Sachin was saying about the committee, but also because since this is a charter amendment, so that's the city charter, it's basically our constitution, uh, a charter amendment needs six votes from the board of supervisors to get on the ballot and we don't have six reasonable people on the board currently that's why our strategy is get reasonable common people on the board of supervisors to prevent this kind of run around against good policies how many okay so there's 11 supervisors correct mm -hmm. how many do you think are that's reasonable right. At most four. Okay, no, no, no. Let me say, at most five. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you think, Sachin? Sachin, you're making a face. <laughs> I, I'm surprised that you went to five. I would have said barely four. Um, but I do want to mention that, um, so if you back up two years ago, of the 11, we only had two reasonable supervisors. And in 2022, we were able to gain two seats. So that yep. was a huge, huge improvement um, from where we were. And this November, six supervisor seats are up for election. Um, and we need two common sense pro-growth supervisors to then have a majority. Uh, and then we will see massive improvements to the city. Yeah, what I'm sort of hearing through the grapevine is the um, balance of power could really shift this upcoming November back to moderate. Um, and there, and this, you know, historically, I grew up in San Francisco. This is a, this is a forever uh, power battle from what I can tell, at least for a long, long, long time, there's been shifts between more progressive, more moderate. Um, now, as a reminder, moderate in San Francisco is probably viewed as left-wing by the majority of the country and viewed as right-wing in San Francisco. Um, mm -hmm. I know that you guys are getting attacked as right-wing. I get attacked as right-wing. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the attacks you're getting and sort of what are the arguments against you? Um, I mean, I, I think it is worth mentioning there was, there are, I mean, you, you're definitely ruffling feathers and there are a lot of people who are upset about what you're doing. Do you want to speak to that at all? Well, I think I'll start by saying um, I actually don't think a lot of people are upset by what we're doing. I think a small 
vocal minority of people don't like what we're doing because there are a lot of people out there who are NIMBYs. You know, they don't want to see housing production in the city. There are people out there who don't want to see job growth. There are people out there who hate the tech community, even though the tech community is doing so much to bring value and jobs to the city. Building companies are literally saving lives and like innovating, you know, so we can like, you know, solve climate change and, and whatnot, you know. So yeah, if those 10% of people like hate us, that's fine. Like I, I'm not going to change their minds, but most people want a reasonable growing city. Um, yeah. And so, you know, for me as someone who like really was not involved in politics before GrowSF, um, you know, you might think like, oh my God, like how can you like deal with these attacks? And like, isn't that like scary? And I'm like, it just doesn't hurt me. It doesn't bother me because they're baseless. You know, they have nothing on us. Like we are so transparent in who we are. We are such it and Steven. We, you know, work on this like uh, nonprofit together. We publish a voter guide. I'm raising two kids here. You know, we are who we are. We are more transparent than all of our opponents. Who is the League of Pissed Off Voters? Who is funding them? Who writes their voter guide? No right. one knows. So they're yeah. the shadowy organization. And, you know, as long as we're honest, transparent, authentic, we're, we're going to keep growing and we're going to keep winning. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you're getting some pushback on your funding. I, I do think we should talk about that. I um from And I want to make sure I'm correct here. So please, you know, keep me honest. From what I understand, there are some Republicans in town who have donated to Grow SF. And I think that a lot of people have a major issue with this. Um, they think it's dark money. This is the big term that's used. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and how you think about it? I do not believe we have any donors that are major donors that are Republicans. Now, look, if someone goes to our website and they put in their credit card and they donate 100 bucks, it's not like I'm checking everyone's political affiliation to know, like, you know, where they are. Um, but overall, we have 1,200 unique donors that have contributed to Grow SF. Um, so we're really proud of that. It's, it's really a grassroots effort. You know, people of all walks of life, all income levels are donating because they care about the city. Um, and um, you know, our, th our major donors are, are just people who, uh, you know, they, they've had some success and they want to help the city get back on track. And we're proud of that. Um, most of our donors are public. We don't shy away from sharing who our donors are. Uh, mm -hmm. You can look them up. They're in public filing records. Like we, we run a political action committee. You cannot do election spending without disclosing who's donating to you. So mm -hmm. we, we actually have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All these attacks about dark money fundamentally misunderstand what dark money is. It's not dark money if it's literally public. You can go to a state-run database. You can go to a city-run database and look up all the donors to our political activities, it's 100% public and transparent. So mm -hmm. they say dark money because they're trying to build this narrative. Going back to what we said earlier, their ideas are unpopular, so they have to resort to attacks. They can't talk about the issues, so they try and make people distrust us by lying to them. So, you know, people are going to lie. We can't stop them from lying. All we can do is focus on giving the voters the best information we can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually i want to say one more thing mm -hmm. there's this new group the phoenix project yes that's what i was referring they, to <laughs> they they claim they claim to be uncovering all this dark money you know what they're doing they're going to the publicly available filing information and getting data that anyone can get again totally literally not dark money and then they're 
putting fancy graphics on it and like putting their hyperbolic statements around it and then publishing it like they've got this incredible scoop. Meanwhile, they are literally a dark money group who doesn't disclose any of their donors. They're doing the exact thing they're accusing us of doing that we are not doing. It's it's the, the level of mental gymnastics and mind suckery involved in this is just I, I can't even just I can't wrap my head around it. Well, yeah. one funny thing that's happened in the last day, I guess, it's like a couple of donors have been, have tweeted like, you know, I'm not a billionaire, right? Because that's their attack or they're all these billionaires right, right, right. and like the they're sitting there like, I'm not a billionaire, you know? And so it's just funny how like they're they're just so often like, you know, making these like false attack but also the fact like donors to us and other groups that are you know doing good work they're proud to be publicly disclosed they're like yeah i'm a donor to grow sf like what of it you know like we're just trying to do good things for the city so i yeah, mean there's nothing to hide here they um and they have not shared where their funding comes from i know that um yeah it's it's a very interesting doc that they just released i got it a couple days ago I mean, I'm, I have it open here. So this is the part that I would like mm -hmm. to understand. So they have a list of all these conservative donors who have given money to neighbors for SF, right? So Will mm -hmm. Obendorf, Christian Larson, John Atwater, Christopher James, you know, they're talking about, oh, this person gave to Jeb Bush in 2016, or this person gave to Bush in 2000. I, so I guess in some sense, if neighbors for, neighbors for SF is giving you money and they're giving money to neighbors SF, then technically people that supported Republicans are also, there are those people who are your donors, correct? Where the money flows from them. For, I, I think, first of all, um, I'm not sure people like Chris Larson are Republicans. I, I don't, I'm not yeah. sure really where they're getting that list from or what, you know, if I really believe their information on who's what party affiliation or what they stand right. for. Um, right. Yeah, I'm pretty so, sure Chris is a registered Democrat. Yeah, yeah, I have actually seen him behind some things that are very, very far left, if I remember correctly, right. on, um, yes. on criminal justice reform. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think he was a major donor of Chessa's. That is right. I mean, it shouldn't really matter, right? But this right. is their argument. They're saying sure. these people gave money to people that were not Democrats, right? They're not part of the tribe, I think is kind of the TLDR there. Like people who are not a part of the tribe gave money to this group and then this money gave money to this group. And that's the issue. Um, I think it speaks to how tribal and partisan San Francisco is. I also think this is part of the big issue is that San Francisco, anything that is considered in any way tangential to conservatives or conservatism, God forbid you gave to some, you know, to Bush in 2000. Now it becomes an issue 24 years later. You're not like anything that you touch is considered dirty. I mean, this is, I think, part of the mentality that has created part of the problem in San Francisco is. People are so afraid to speak up and say anything that could be considered conservative to give. I mean, it, it come, you know, it's like, um, how, what is it? It's sort of like the modern day. I, I, I don't know what to call it, but it's extremely tribal. And it I think it's very uh, destructive. Well, I think that, um, you know, not just about money, but uh, in general, the far left did a good job for a while of silencing normal people from speaking up about the issues that yeah. were affecting them. You know, a few years ago, you couldn't say, like, I don't feel safe walking on the street or I want more police officers like you would get attacked. And I think things really have changed the last few years where like normal people are just starting to say normal things about how they feel. And then they're looking around the room. They're like, wait, all of you think that, too? Oh, this is great. Right. Like, I didn't realize, like, you know, we're, we all feel like we need to invest more in public safety and these things. 
Um, and I think that political donations coming back to the money is also part of that, right? I think a lot of people generally weren't involved in, in politics before um, and especially not necessarily donating money. And now they're realizing like, this is important, right? Like if I live in San Francisco, I can't just ignore politics. Like I need to get involved. I need to participate. And number one, that's through voting. But also, yeah, if you can, it's through donating. And you shouldn't be mm -hmm. ashamed of that. Like, you know, um, we we do raise money and we we spend money to advertise our voter guide and our endorsements. But, you know, in probably every election that we've played in, we've been outspent by the other side significantly. Mm -hmm. So so they try to pretend like we're spending all this money when they are, in fact, spending more money than we are. Um, but our message resonates because that's where voters are. When you focus on just running on issues rather than identity, uh, you're able to actually speak to what voters care about. So to 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 to. So to extend what Sachin was saying about spending less than the other side, let's look at the election for Joel and Gardio in, in 2022. The main donor supporting Joel and Gardio uh, to to grow SF was Chris Larson. He was the mm -hmm. biggest supporter of Chase Boudin. I didn't like Chase Boudin. We helped with the Chase Boudin recall, but that doesn't matter because what matters is that Joel and Gardio had the right ideas for his district. And Chris saw that and we saw that. And like, it didn't matter who he had given to in the past or how we had endorsed on past elections. The only thing that mattered was voters said they want this and Joel would deliver it. So that's the only thing that matters. I don't care who you donate to. I don't even care what you, what you think. Like what I care about is giving voters what they're asking for. Yeah. I think we're getting close to a point where we can wrap. Um, I would be curious, you know, just to tie, sort of finish this conversation on the funding. Are you able to share sort of how much money you've raised or deployed? Um, are there any numbers that you feel comfortable sharing that would just sort of put into context the scale of the organization? You know, how many people work there? I assume you guys take salaries. Any Anything that you think sure. would be helpful as people just get a sense of like how this all works? Yeah, so we operate as a 501c4 nonprofit and a uh, political action committee. So um, uh, on our not, in our nonprofit, we've got me, Stephen, we've got a couple other part-time employees. Um, that's about it. We're pretty small and lean. So our budget there is, you know, call it $700,000 a year for, you know, salaries and operations. Mm -hmm. And then we have our political action committee, which spends to get our endorsements and voter guide in front of folks. And for... This election uh, in March, um, we're spending about $800,000 in total uh, across our mail and digital programs. And then um, we're going to run a big program in, in November as well. And it'll probably be, you know, around that order of magnitude, maybe a little bit more money. Um, but that's, that's it. And we're, you know, we're very capital efficient. We do everything in-house. You know, we design our own mail. We design our own ads. We run our own ads. Well, we're very data-driven, so we understand what ads are converting and working. Um, and we're just, you know, trying to, again, reach voters with honest, accurate information. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's all we do. Are you, so are you mailing the actual voter guide to people's homes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We and so mailed, how many oh, people sorry. received that? I mean, everybody effectively. Oh, everyone. Yeah. The whole, the whole town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for... So for November, last November, yes, everyone got it. For okay. this one, because the election, like it, it was un it's unusual because the biggest thing on the ballot is a, a race that only Democrats can vote on. So 
Democrats got the, the, the version of the voter guide that included that information and non-Democrats got the version that didn't have that information because mm-hmm. you shouldn't like that's not useful to them. They can't vote on it. It would just take up space and, you know, increase costs. So we, we don't do that. Right. We always try and constrain costs because we try to be as efficient as possible. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we sent it to, I think, almost everyone. We did run an experiment uh, this cycle. So we did a holdout because we want to understand, uh, does this move people, right? Does it increase mm-hmm. turnout? Does it change behavior? And interestingly enough, we might be the only local organization that is doing those kinds of data-driven experiments to, to figure out, is this a good way to spend money? Is this helping voters get good information? Uh, we we built and ran all these experiments in the past six months and doing all this fancy statistical analysis. You know what we found out? Voters want safe streets and clean streets and good education. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. So that's what we're going to keep working on because that's what voters tell us they care about. Right. And cheaper rent. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cheaper rent, as always. Um, what's performing well online? Like, what is? Is there like a keyword that's really performing for you guys, or any tidbits you can share? I mean, I think the at a high level, the main thing is just talking about outcomes. Like, we want to elect people who care about how the cities run, and it's not about ideologies, but it's about you know getting things done, and that's what we put out there you know like we we've elected a lot of people in the past that aren't doing the job so uh, we need to replace them sorry let me rephrase that question when you look at your digital ad spend what Hmm. what is getting people to the guide there's no standout uh keyword that i recall you know people search for voter guides they search for um you know the names of ballot propositions um, people, sometimes people just search election, you know, mm. and, um, our goal is that anyone who's looking for information can find it easily. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm not recalling that there's any standout top performing keyword. Um, we don't do anything shady. Uh, we just like, you know, okay, if you're searching for the election and you're based in San Francisco, we'd, we'd like to, you to see our voter guide. Because we think it'll be helpful. But yeah, there's not a standout keyword. But yeah, Sachin. Yeah, maybe one thing, you know, this isn't maybe specific to like the digital ads, but an area that people are looking for a lot of information on is the DCCC election. So that's the leadership of the Democratic Party of San Francisco. So we're voting on that in March. And it's a race that most people have never heard of and they don't know what it means. And so we're doing a lot of work to educate people on that. So briefly, um, the San Francisco Democratic Party uh, is an elected body that you know we elect, and it does a few things. But the most important thing it does is it makes endorsements for other candidates and ballot props. Mm-hmm. So right now, the SF Democratic Party is led by far left progressives, and they have made really bad endorsements. So they have endorsed Connie Chan, Dean Preston, Chasey Boudin, and the reason why this is important is if you are a voter in San Francisco. And, you know, you're on page eight in these like local on the local races. And you're like, I don't know how to vote. I don't know who these people are. Let me go and see who the Democratic Party endorses because I'm a Democrat right. and I'm just going to follow that guide. But you don't realize that that guide is actually 
pointing you to these like incompetent, you know, degrowth people. Um, so this in this election right now, the most important race is the the leadership of this party. And so we've endorsed uh, 24 candidates. Uh, there's 14 on the east side, 10 on the west side. You, you vote for all of those. Um, it's the SF Dems for Change slate. Um, and if we can, um, you know, elect some of our candidates into this, this body in this election, then hopefully for the November election, the SF Democratic Party will endorse supervisor candidates that want to see more housing being built and they want to, uh, uh, you know, invest in public education and they want to support businesses, not kill businesses. Um, and so make sure right now that, you know, you vote uh, in this election. It is very critical. I'm so glad you brought that up because the most recent episode in Notes from the Front was with someone running for the DCCC, Lanier Coles. And something yeah. that we missed in our conversation that now a few people have asked me about is, well, how much does this organization really matter? How much of the vote do they actually influence? Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, they're highly influential. Our, in, our analysis shows that they move about 14% of the electorate. So just getting that endorsement from the Democratic Party gives you a baseline of like, you're going to get at least 14%. Um, you know, obviously 14% isn't enough to win, but we're talking about elections that are decided by 150 votes out of right. a 500,000 person voting pool. So 14% is a huge, phenomenal landslide victory. And they've been endorsing people like Dean Preston and, and uh, Aaron Peskin and Connie Chan and Hillary Ronan, all of whom want to defund the police and, and fight development and push out jobs and get, get rid of uh, not allow housing. Like they are degrowthers with a decel mindset to, to, uh, and we, we have to stop electing them basically. Mm. Mm. Okay, to wrap us up, I want to ask you guys, if you were mayor and you had a genie and you could ask it to do three things for San Francisco, what would they be? Okay, I'll start. So this is assuming that you have total control as mayor, or the, the genie has total control. Is that genie right? Genie has control. Okay. So... um. First of all, I would restore the executive authority that Aaron Peskin has eroded from the mayor's office and make it a city that is governable because uh, the mayor the mayor is held hostage by the board. The mayor doesn't actually have much power. It's controlled by the board. Uh, so I, I would fix that. Um, I would get rid of all discretionary permits and instead create a city of laws rather than a city of men uh, I, I you know i it's my belief that government should adhere to laws and not open up avenues for corruption but san francisco's city charter ha is littered with opportunities for corruption uh, which is why you know fbi has been investigating and arresting so many people so get rid of discretionary review, discretionary permits, have, have a city ruled by law. Um, and I would 
reduce the board of supervisors to a part-time job hmm. because they're the role of the board of supervisors is to pass laws and do constituent services is passing laws at for a city of less than a million people is that really a full-time job you know at some point maybe we have enough laws maybe we need to do mm-hmm. uh, a better job running the city and responding to the needs of its people instead of passing yet another law so uh i think that would attract people who have more real world experience and who have maybe worked for a living rather than career politicians I believe it used to be a part-time job, right? I believe so. I don't Before know when the 80s? it switched. I want to say like the 1920s, maybe, maybe the 40s, but like I think it was. Much maybe later. it was more recent. I think it was okay. part-time. I remember because I was doing research on the salaries. I'll follow up and put a note in the show notes on okay. this. But I think that the salaries got bumped up. To, I think they're they're still. I mean, they're not so high. It, you know, when you look at a no. city where overtime cops yeah. and bus drivers are making 400 or 500 k. If, if they have are doing a bunch of overtime, I think the supervisors make around 150. Um, and I know that that used to be very low. I, I think it was more like the 80s that it became full time. But I'll I'll it put was, a note. It was definitely before the 80s, because I know uh, Diane Feinstein, when she was a supervisor, that was a, I believe that was a full time job. Uh, and that was 1978. Uh, at, at least I forget exactly when she was elected, but I, I remember she took a, a really important vote in 1978, that down zone to the city, um, which interestingly enough, the city economist said, this is going to raise housing prices. And they did it anyway. And sure enough, um, I, I would say it's probably the 40s, but yeah, all, mm. I would have to do the research as well. Hmm. Uh, Sasha, what would you job? do? Yep. So I, I think um, Stephen definitely hit on, on the big ones, right? Like, that's what we need to see to, to have San Francisco function well. Um, maybe just to put a different lens on it. Um, you know, I think that San Francisco could be one of the best places to raise a family, right? Right now, it is known that it's hard to raise a family here and families leave, you know, once they have kids or kids are going to school. But, you know, if we fix a few fundamental problems, like how amazing is it to raise your kids in an urban setting with public transportation one of the best park systems in the world, you know, and so much diversity, culture, food. I mean, we love it. So, you know, what are a few things that, you know, someone could do to, to help there? So, you know, one, yes, like we got to build more housing to bring down housing costs so that more people can afford to live here. And that includes teachers, police officers, baristas, like you name it, you should be able to live in San Francisco and raise a family here. Um, number two, we should have the best public schools in the world. Like, this is the tech capital of the world, right? Like we are building incredible companies. We have incredible universities around us. We should be starting young, you know, kids once they're like in kindergarten, from there on training them to be the leaders and innovators of the future. Um, so, so we need to do that. And then the third, you know, for me personally, especially more recently, having two small kids, um, it's around um, transit and pedestrian safety. Like I want to be able to safely walk around the city, bike around the city with my kids. And right now, I don't feel like I can do that. Um, you know, police are basically not enforcing any traffic laws. People are speeding, blowing through stop signs, uh, ignoring red lights. Uh, you know, you really have to be alert if you're out, you know, not in a car. And that needs to change. Um, mm. 
But, you know, I think the overall framing is I want people to say, I'm going to raise my kids in San Francisco. I want more people mm-hmm. to do that. And, you know, that that would be a top goal of mine. Yes. Well, the city, both now and in the past, has a low number of children per capita compared to other major cities. I think that some of the stats that are sort of jaw dropping are things like I think the city has more dogs than children. Um, and I also believe there are more. <laughs> inter- I remember <laughs> this from many years ago there are more intravenous drug users in san francisco than high schoolers um i think there's like the estimate is like about twenty thousand. yeah so i yes i would say probably housing costs are the biggest part of that but also the schools and and that's long you know but long time issues all right so a lot of issues to solve a lot of problems how optimistic are you that things are about to turn around on a scale of one to ten and then we'll wrap I 10 being am. highly, so, highly optimistic. I am so optimistic. I am I'm a 10 out of 10 optimist. I think I think we are a couple elections away from fundamentally changing the direction of the city to get it back on track and to build a city that makes room for new immigrants, new families, has the best schools in the nation. All we got to do is vote for some better people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a 10 out of 10. Um, I, I, I agree. You know, a couple more elections. We're going to get some good leaders in place who are outcomes driven and they're going to get the city back on track. I want to share one poll number. You know, we uh, a lot of polls ask, you know, do you think the city's on the wrong track or the right track? And this number has been going down for a while. And the last time, you know, we polled, it was something like 68% think the city's on the wrong track. So it's not a good number. But we asked a follow-up question that was pretty unique, I think. Um, And we asked, do you think that the city can be fixed? And 86% of voters said that they think it can be fixed. That's incredible. Um, And it shows that, you know, the people who are here, they have hope. Um, And I think that's just critical, right? If you have hope and people are willing to, to get involved, you know, pay more attention, vote intelligently, um, it, then it's, it's a done deal. Like, we're going to fix the city. I love that. All right. On that note, I think we can say that's a wrap. Um, thank you both so much for joining and sharing so much information, your personal views, the history and story of the organization. I personally find what you're doing very inspiring, and I think a lot of other people will as well. So... Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, We had a great time. I really appreciate you putting this together. Yeah, thank you. It's great. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode inspiring or interesting or illuminating in any way and you want to share it, you can find links to the Spotify, Substack, Overcast, YouTube, and Apple versions of this piece in the show notes. Additionally, if you have any feedback and would like to share your ideas, please feel free to email me. I'm michelle at notesfromthefront.com. All right. Thank you so much.